Welcome back to Hacker Talk, the podcast by hackers for hackers. This is the second episode with Ben Kurtz. My name is Philip and I will be your host for today's show. In case you missed part one, we covered Ben's background, getting into hacking, Golang malware, calling functions in Windows without being detected by antivirus, by calling libraries that are already loaded instead of re-importing all of those libraries like a normal program would. Here comes part two. Enjoy. A friend of mine in Australia, uh, Sisto, made a library which also uses the debug, you know, the library, but he actually implemented Hellsgate and Go. And Hellsgate is uh, an EDR evasion technique on Windows, uh, which is a way of making what they call direct system calls, which is not a concept in any other operating system. This is just a Windows only thing. And it is because there are uh, like, you don't directly make system calls in Windows normally. You you call system calls in Windows through stub functions that are in NTDLL. And those stub functions in NTDLL have a particular layout. And inside that layout, there is a number. And that number is the system call number, right? And that system and, call and number... It's not like syscalls in Linux with libc. No. Oh, God, no. Syscalls sys in, sys in Windows are regular library calls. Okay. Because the cur- the kernel is exposed as libraries in Windows. Mm-hmm. I, no, if you're not familiar with the Windows kernel, uh, it is crazy town. It is very, very different than uh, the Linux kernel. And uh, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Um, no. But so, so there's, there's, a, there's, this is just how things are on the ground in Windows, right? Like, so normally what you, you don't make a direct system call. Uh, normally your, your library is compiled against the NTDLL library. And when your code is calling uh, system calls, they're actually calling library, exported library functions in NTDLL, and then they're getting rerouted to the system call, right? Mm-hmm. But they're just, they're doing, they're being, they're being rerouted through these templated function hook, like there are these, th- there's these template functions uh, in NTDLL for each uh, kernel uh, system call that is nothing but the same template over and over and each one of the and it has the number of the system call that 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 stub is for in it and that the number of the system call is in a known location okay and that's key that's key so basically the hell's gate method for avoiding edr and why this avoids edr is a common technique for detecting malware uh, that edr uses is to hook the functions in ntdll so they will actually alter NTDLL in memory. They will replace the uh, the system call stubs with uh, uh, functions that call back into their own stuff and do some monitoring, and then eventually call out to the system call. Right. So they they hook these system call uh, stubs uh, to route back into their own thing and trigger detections. Right. So you want to avoid these hooks. The, the, the Hellsgate method, basically what it does is it finds NTDLL in memory somehow, or it loads it again from disk. Uh, if it's already been hooked, you just you load it from disk and parse it. And you, you parse NTDLL, you look, through, you look for the functions that you want, you pull out the, 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 the magic number you know, for the system call that you want, and then you rebuild the stub function in memory. And then you use the stub function that you built in memory as the 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 kind of like stack setup to call uh, the directly into the kernel, you make a direct system call. Mm-hmm. All right, and, and that avoids uh, NTDLL if NTDLL has been hooked by an EDR, and uh, that actually that actually works out of the box on a lot of EDRs. Um, so there is a repo, Sisto's uh, Banana Phone. Uh, Banana Phone makes this as easy to use from Go code as the regular syscall interface. He made an entirely com- a syscall compatible tool called uh, make direct win syscall that can convert your, it works the same way as the regular make syscall. So there's this make syscall utility that comes with the uh, syscall and Golang where you give it a file that has the header, the Windows, the Windows prototype, the Windows function prototype of the function that you want to call into, right? Mm-hmm. You paste that you paste that header in to a comment in a file, and then you run this utility on it, and it generates the um, the Go stub code for you. 
And then you can just call it from your code um, as if uh, it was a regular function. Okay. That's how syscall works normally with the utility called make win, make win syscall. So Sisto as part of banana phone made it, made a complementary utility called make direct win syscall, which works exactly the same way, but it banana phones your, uh, your syscalls. It hellscates them. It, I, it, it, it will, it will automatically make them bypass NTDLL and go directly to the kernel on windows. It will automatically bypass a lot of EDRs, uh, at least that part of their detection. And uh, so there's like, we've just been slapping banana phone on everything. So you'll see banana phone get used in go Mimi cats, uh, uh, at least some versions. Uh, I use, I just, I use it on everything basically on windows. There's no particular reason not to. And uh, yeah, I don't know. That's just like, that's one of the more useful uh, go like malware repos for sure. Nice. So if someone that's been doing a bit of go wants to get into writing implants and writing malware, where do they start? Where do you think is a good way to start writing? Um, what kind of libraries should they look into? I, I, right off the, right off the bat, I would look at sliver. Sliver. Um, yeah, I would, uh, yeah, it's from Bishop Fox, uh, which is, a you know, red team style consulting company. Uh, they're pretty high end. Uh, they have some very, very, very sharp people. I'm sure they, they also do like non-red team consulting too, but, uh, the, the, the sliver C2 implant framework was developed by their red team folks for use, you know, by their red team on actual engagements. It has been, uh, continuously worked on for a really long time. It has some really interesting and unique features and it will get, if you look at the source code, it, I would recommend looking at like just I'm not saying use Sliver necessarily, but I would recommend installing it, playing with it, seeing kind of how it works, seeing what the different features are, and maybe just looking at the source code for those different features to see how they work, to see what libraries they use under the hood. That's why we published all of this as open source. This is not, this is not about writing actual malware and actually hacking into real targets. This is, comes from a place where We've been running out of ways of saying this because the culture at large doesn't seem to want to, to understand how dependent they are on computers and how garbage computers actually are as implemented, right? Like when you watch TV, they have hacker characters all the time, but they're doing things that aren't even physically possible yeah. a lot of the times. And, and they have to be, oh, really, really smart to do this. Oh, they're so smart. They can hack into things. Well, and it's like that actually, that attitude is entirely wrong. Like you don't have to be smart at all to hack into things. Like you just have to be uh, stupid really fast, basically. That's one way of going about it. There's a lot, you know, there's, a, there, the, because the fact of the matter is, it's a lot easier to screw something up than it is to do something right. It's almost impossible to do something right. And people, mm -hmm. there's a lot, there's a lot of people. And every year that passes, there are, there are more people working in computers, writing code that are less educated, which is, I mean, that's great. Uh, it's great that people are, you know, getting better paying jobs after taking like a 12 week uh, Python programming course. Mm -hmm. That's, that is, that is a great thing for a lot of people, but what it does mean is that there is exponentially more code being written by, um, less trained people every year that passes. So and, more and, bugs and, and more easy ways to get in. Yeah. Not bugs. even, not even just more bugs. The, like the rate at which there are more bugs is astonishing. And, and, and the rate at which we find bugs is astonishingly small. So the. Have you heard of CVEs, the common vulnerability? Yeah, of course. Common vulnerability. Uh, Wider thing. But what is the E? It, 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 it's common e, vulnerability it's, index. I don't know. I want to say enumeration, no? Enumeration, something like Enumeration, that, yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah, Common yeah. vulnerability but C, enumeration, but, yeah. But, but CVEs are kind of a scam, right? Because they only actually publish a small, small percentage of the bugs that get reported to them every year. Yeah. And that's because they can only physically look at a small percentage of the bugs that get reported to them every year. 
So people think, oh, there were like a few thousand, you know, you know, CVEs in whatever year. That's how many bugs there were. No, that's like a small percentage of the number of bugs that were known. The number of bugs that there were is going to be like orders of magnitude higher than the number of bugs that were known. Right. Yeah. So like the number of bugs that there are is uh, I'm going to say it's astonishingly close to infinite. Like basically I could find bugs for money forever and, 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 you know, probably still find bugs. Like it might take me longer and longer as I go. There might be a diminishing returns type situation, but you're never going to entirely run out. Right. And this is also why I prefer to be an attacker because at least I can, at least I can win. And, uh, uh, I think I'm just not, uh, I don't have the mental fortitude to, to struggle day after day on a chasing the unicorn and just making it better and better. And well, where I just know I can't win. Right. Or it's just, I'm just counting the seconds until I lose. Right. I think that would be difficult for me personally. I'm just, I'm, I'm frail, but, but uh, it's, yeah. Is there any, like, I, I assume you do, uh, like, a lot of code audits and stuff like that, uh, or uh, review oh, yeah. source code to for pen testing? Is there any, like, common well, patterns that, that you that, continuously see? Yes. Yeah. That's why it gets easy. It gets so easy to, to find bugs in code because people are more similar to each other than they are different, right? Uh. And that means that when, especially less trained people, right? So... Like if I look at the code of uh, uh, like 10 people that came out of a 12 week course, that they're going to make the same kinds of errors. You know why they're going to make the same kinds of errors? Because they didn't talk about cross-site scripting in their 12 week course. Mm-hmm. They didn't talk about SQL injection in their 12 week course, or they talked about it really briefly. And maybe it wasn't even described correctly or it wasn't described completely or who knows what, right? Like, but honestly, 12 weeks is like, if you learn programming in 12 weeks, that's pretty impressive. That's, but that's going to be like fundamental concepts. It's not going to be all the nuances of all the things that you can possibly do wrong because there are, as I said, infinite things that you can do wrong and it will take you a lifetime to discover what all of those are. The, the one thing that's kind of uh, made things better, made things worse, you know, is the, the, the rise of JavaScript, right? So like mm-hmm. uh, the vast majority of programmers now work only in JavaScript. There's like Node, you know, there's like React, there's all the front end stuff. But what's come along with that is that a lot of the JavaScript frameworks people are writing and make it a lot more difficult to make some of the traditional errors. So you do see classes of bugs kind of going away, like, or becoming less useful. Uh, For example, you know, cross-site scripting used to be a much bigger deal. Mm -hmm. Um, It still would be a big deal now in a lot of circumstances, but just because of underlying technologies at use, like content types, maybe you're just not even going to hit it because there's no way the developer can screw it up. Uh, SQL injection, there's always the possibility for a human to, to introduce SQL injection uh, through screwing things up. Yeah. Uh, because the SQL layer just doesn't know that you concatenated a string. So that's just always going to be a bug. I've had a lot of luck in modern times with uh, XXE, XML, External Entity Inclusion. Mm. What does the E stand for? Uh, external Entity well, oh man, I, I always, I always want to put an I where an E is. I, I, I don't know what it is. Something's wrong with me. But the uh, uh, XXEs, uh, basically, where you you put your injection string in an XML and you try to get it to include a remote uh, DTD, you oh. know, or schema document, and you can use that to exfiltrate data. You can use that to scan internal networks from the outside. You can use that to do all. Uh, you can use that to to spoof uh, emails to an internal SMTP server. You can use that to do some, you can use that to do some weird stuff if you get into XXEs. Um, But it's pretty cool because it's a bug that is everywhere still. It's pretty easy to find. It's fun to play with. It it can, uh, in some circumstances, it can lead to code execution. uh, It's some weird, weird, and obviously like shell injection is still, you know, everywhere that log, the the log4j thing. Yeah. Log file injection is now like in remote code execution and all you have to do is set your user agent to an attack string and get yeah, about yeah. business and maybe uh maybe you'll just get code execution somewhere you don't know that's that's where we live now it's gone like we thought when i got into to, to working in security like years and years ago i thought hey we'll just enumerate all the types of bugs we'll tell the people about the, all the types of bugs then they won't write any code with the bugs anymore they'll fix all the bugs and then the industry will go away 
right? That's what I thought was going to happen at the time. But what happened instead, at, when I started working in computers, everyone who programmed had a degree in computer science. What happened instead, though, is that uh, the demand for programmers grew exponentially and the supply actually dropped off for like a 15-year period after about 2003 in the United States, the number of computer science graduates actually decreased. Uh, and it didn't, it didn't get back up to the same level until like 2017 or something. Um, so, you know, what was business supposed to do? You know, they needed websites constantly, ever, ever expanding websites for every business. Yep. Um, and so they, uh, you know, they just started hiring people out of the 12 week programs and they started, um, introducing the same old bugs way, way faster than ever. Um, and it, it became clear to me that the, the, the whole like professional hacker industry, the security engineer industry is ba basically morphing into how do we funnel developers through some shoot where we have choke points where we can, you know, prevent them from making the most egregious errors with the least amount of effort on our part. Right. So we can touch the most teams on their way to production. Yeah. Know, as yeah, a, yeah, as that's the, as possible, right? But but how do um, we do that? Do we create secure operating systems? They give them a safe playing field, or give them? Do yeah. we create stable programming libraries that they can't fuck up? I mean, it's uh, yeah, oh, that's definitely part of it. A lot of it is process too. Mm -hmm. You know, like um, one company might hire like 150 developers or something, and then they'll hire like one or two security engineers. And they'll just use the security engineers to do the final check on this code that's written by the, the, the inexperienced developers before it gets shipped, right? And that's kind of become the, the, pat, the model. So what happened is, you know, when I started out as a security consultant, I thought, hey, we're just going to tell all these people about these problems and then they'll stop doing it. And then, it, then we'll, I'll, I'll move on to do something else with my life, right? Yeah. But what it turned into is they were like, hey, we've got these guys that can just look through this code and be like, there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a problem, I'm done, right? And that let them, instead of having uh, someone like me as a, as a programmer, they have someone like me overseeing the output of many, many, many programmers. And that mm -hmm. lets them hire uh, less experienced programmers that are more likely to make errors, but it's fine because now we've set up a process where they, if they're about to do anything that could, uh, uh, break anything bad or make a big vulnerability, you know, we do a little bit of triage. We're like, Hey, are you touching anything dangerous? No, do whatever. We don't care. Are you going to touch something dangerous? Okay. Well, let me have a look at that real quick. And I'm just going to have a quick look at that for what we think are the most critical issues for whatever it is you're doing. Right. So it's become a lot more about having optimizing the utilization of the more skilled resources that you have because you can't hire them. Mm -hmm. Like the, the demand for security engineers far outstrips the supply. And, uh, the, I mean, it's, it's, uh, in a way it's nice, you know, uh, it, I, I don't, I don't worry about job security. I, I get sort of my, my choice of, of things I want to work on or whatever on the, on the flip side of it, I do worry about my species. I think we're probably all going to die in a fire at some uh -huh. point. And we're all going to turn things thing. And it's maybe. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, sure. But I, I mean, like literally, like I thought, I thought uh Terminator was, was a bit of a joke the first time I saw it. And now and like, as time passes, I'm like, you know, that, that, uh, that's that would that uh, that could totally happen yeah 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 you know but it might not even require like this magical thing like like the like artificial intelligence to just magically develop it could be something as simple as like elon musk moves to mars and then just like thinks it would be funny to you know destroy the earth by remote control right did you ever see that video of him suggesting we nuke both poles on mars no, his eyes, lit, his, his eyes lit up. That's all I'm saying. Right. Like, you don't know, like, they, they, I mean, it's, that's, like, I'm not, I'm going to say, I'm not saying he would do that, but that's, a, that, you know, 
you could see how that could happen to like 50 years out. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a foreseeable future. And that, and that's a wacky one, right? Like I, I, I'm not even like railing off any of the, 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 the numerous more likely ways uh, things could go terribly wrong, but I'm just talking about like all of us, almost all of us humans, we don't know where our food comes from. Like we're entirely reliant on the system we live in for, for survival. You know, if you're a diabetic or you wear eyeglasses or you have to take some kind of medication to survive, it's like you can't necessarily make that yourself from stuff you find outside. It goes a little further than that. It's like most most people can't even produce enough food to keep themselves alive yeah. continuously. You know, most people get food from the store and it gets delivered to the store from some massive supply chain they don't really understand. And uh, we've become so insanely specialized that all we have to do is know about our one little narrow segment of things and they give us our bio survival tickets and we don't have to think about anything else, right? So the problem comes from the fact that we've built these incredibly comp complex systems out of duct tape and bailing wire. And they were all built by people uh, uh, who didn't really give a crap about what they did at their day job because uh, their life was really about something else or their manager was a jerk and their manager didn't know, their manager wasn't technical anyway and didn't even know what the hell they were writing and had no idea if the code was good or bad. And then all this stuff, like, that didn't get tested right and it got, um, you know, it got shipped and it seemed to work fine, so they just left it, right? And that that is the story of every power plant, water processing, you know, system, chemical plant, like nuclear power plant. You know, they they do have, like, stricter testing regimes for some things, but I've seen those testing regimes and they're not great. Right. There are, they're not complete. Like the coverage isn't always great. Like they're usually very narrow. Like there's a certain way that they were thinking about the problem at the time they wrote those regulations that hasn't been updated and is very difficult to update. You know, there's like, there's always some, some reason, you know? Um, and then even if, even if the rules are right, if the regulations are right, the odds that the implementation is right, the odds that the thing was actually set up in a secure way is like, probably not, you know, like things need to be maintained. So whoever it is who needs to maintain the thing, whatever it is, the chemical plant, whatever, odds are somebody poked a hole so that the people who need to maintain it can get in, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, I don't know, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff like that. So there was this whole round of like, what, what, when people got really into SCADA exploitation yeah, and it was SCADA. like, oh, oh, hey, we'll, we'll go on Shodan and we found like there's 3,000, you know, Nuclear uh, water facilities yeah. around the world that are that have their SCADA uh, HMIs, their, their human machine inter interfaces just available on the internet with no authentication. So you could just connect to these things and like make, you know, basically make them explode by like twiddling with the water pressure in some pipe until it like you know, maybe you, you make a water hammer out of it. You, you know, you, you, you pulse it until some pipe, you know, and some elbow gives out somewhere. Right. Like that's a theoretically possible thing to do. Yeah. Um, and everyone and so, on in the entire world has access to it because it's open on yeah. the internet. Yeah. The, and so on the one hand, on the one hand, you're thinking, well, no one ever connected to it before, but it was open this whole time. Maybe my whole job is pointless. We shouldn't even have passwords. Cause like, what are the odds someone's actually going to exploit something anyway? It's like, you just you leave it on the internet with no password for years and it's fine. Right. But like, there's that moment where when everybody knows it's a thing, then everybody just goes to Shodan, finds all of them and they all get popped in a weekend. You yeah. know, like, like that log for J thing, that log for J thing blew up fast. That was like, that was like within a day. You know, they had two other patches out within a day because, you know, the people who were scanning for bugs, they kept finding more bugs. Uh, and you could literally see what they were scanning for just by looking at your own logs. Yeah. Um, and there were, but if you looked at the other logs, you, you know, you know, they're, um, that they found some other bugs too in the log for J stuff that haven't even necessarily been patched yet. And some of those other, uh, those other scheme handlers, there's some other weird, like just phone home and run by code functionality. Java is a freaking nightmare. Like just preventing Java from remote code execution is almost impossible. Yeah. I can't, like, I'm kind like, of hoping with all these new programming languages that they will just jump off and start replacing Java. 
I know it will take a really long time because there's so many legacy systems that are written in Java and so many employers hiring Java people. And, uh, you know, I, I also recommend, uh, uh, go for microservices. It's not just good for malware. It's great for microservices. It, 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 it statically compiles, uh, to a native binary, which means that there are no external dependencies to your binary. You don't need to worry about the, uh, DLL hell or, 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 uh, including libraries, everything that the, the program needs is in the one binary. Um, and there's no, um, it runs, it's a native binary. Um, uh, so it does not run a, a, a VM like Java, uh, for companies that are entirely in the cloud, uh, you, uh, actually can generate a report of where your cloud costs are going in terms of CPU cycles. And I would recommend you run one of those and look at how much money you're spending just on Java virtual machine overhead, because it's shocking. It is insane. Uh, it's insane. Yeah. That's so, uh, JVM uh, is uh, is eating up way are, too much resources. There, there are a lot of companies that are switching to GoLang uh, for microservices, especially because if you're already in a microservice environment, it doesn't matter that all your services are running are, are built with the same language. So you can kind of just move them from Java to Go one at a time. And the other one you mentioned is Python to Go. Python should never be a, a web service. It's it's very, very, it's a slow interpreter. It's a, it's a great language for data processing. It's great, uh, as a foreign function interface to native code, but guess what you should never be doing on the web. You should never be taking web requests and funneling them into native code. You should just never, ever do that. That's the thing they did in the old days. You should be like funneling it into a browser sandbox or something like you shouldn't, you, you should not be going to the web and putting that into a native DLL. I don't know. It's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of potential issues with that. Uh, it has, you know, it has support for like a lot, a lot of kind of the, the, the current generation of orchestration software is written in go mm -hmm. like dockers and go terraforms and go, uh, oh, Docker is written in go. I didn't know. That. Oh yeah. Huh. Uh, uh, Kubernetes, uh, yeah. Kubernetes, terraform and Docker are, are all in go. There's a lot, uh, also WireGuard. Isn't Go? Oh yeah, the uh, VPN. The, 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 that's the getting new hot. popular. New oh, that's VPN. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so cool. So it was. It's about time someone made VPNs like idiot proof. You know, like you can just it's a distributed VPN. You can set it up in ten minutes. You can put all your friends on a VPN, even you know, for all the links. Set up so it easy. Yeah, the, uh, there's a lot. There's just a lot of like regular current generation or orchestration stuff in Go. And I, I don't just write Go malware. I also, you know, I, I do like uh, 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 Go services over uh, Kubernetes and stuff uh, uh, for some of my uh, my uh, hobby projects. And, uh, you know, I, I end up uh, pen testing those environments also uh, more and more. Uh, companies are, are deploying stuff that way. So I've done a fair number of like data center, uh, data center pen tests or uh, cloud cloud environment pen tests, uh, which is pretty entertaining. So I am encountering go more and more, um, when I'm actually doing a pen test. Uh, and, uh, so looking at it, uh, from that point of view, it is a lot easier for people to write, a, a secure code in go by accident, you know, than it is in Java or in, um, you know, in most other languages. In, in Python too, there's a lot of really dangerous mistakes people can make, uh, really common. Yeah. Oh, you asked about common patterns. Uh, uh, let me, let me see how many I can rail off. Yeah. But we'll do it by language. Right. Okay. So in, um, in Java, uh, yeah. looking at the code, uh, one pattern that I see really, really, there's a few patterns that I see super commonly. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, one, uh, and these have existed forever. One is in the file constructor In the file constructor. It takes two arguments. One is the base path and one is the file name. Most people assume that Java will canonicalize the path and make sure that it does not have directory traversals in it. But it does not do that. It simply appends one argument to the other with a string concatenation and then proceeds. So the new file constructor allows directory traversal. Anytime someone does new file in Java and they're not calling get canonicalized, canonicalized path se separately, there is a directory traversal. That is, I found that bug in almost every Java source I've ever looked at. Um, I don't know. It's so freaking common because you just, I, I, I want to make a new file. Oh, we'll pass in the, 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 the name of the file from a web request. Well, you failed. Like, just that easy. <laughs> right? Okay. 
The, the next example is pretty simple. This has some crossover with the log4j bug. Uh, any use of LDAP in Java goes through the class dir context, which is uh, uh, which came up in the log4j thing also, uh, although in a slightly <laughs> different way. Dir context, uh, most people assume that it does some kind of sanitization of special characters. It does not. You can straight up always do an LDAP injection through dir context. Uh, if they are not explicitly sanitizing um, incoming user-supplied strings for LDAP special characters. Uh, there are no built-in sanitization or filtering. Nothing. How could okay. they do it? There's uh. no way they could do it. They can, this isn't a bug they can fix. At the layer of abstraction they're at, they don't know which part of the string is valid. Like They don't know what... They, they can't filter it once you've already constructed the, the request. It's almost the same problem as SQL injection. Uh, right you, yeah you in order to in order to solve sql injection you have to do a parameterized query yes. in order to solve this for for ldap they would have to make a dirk a version of dirk context that had parameterized queries i don't know if they ever did that if they did i've never seen anyone use it right like i just i don't think it exists i i can't be bothered to go look it up but it, i believe that that it does there is no parameterized query thing for ldap um, or, uh, or anyway, if they're, uh, when they don't use it, which is traditional, you could always do LDAP injection, which is like you, uh, a lot of people think, um, oh, who cares, but mm -hmm. if I know the layout of your, uh, of your LDAP, uh, tables, uh, sometimes that's an authentication bypass. Sometimes I can just log in. If your thing is open source and I can go look at how the LDAP layout works, like what the name of the things are in LDAP, um, I can. I may just be able to straight log into your thing without knowing anyone's name or password. <laughs> um, and uh, that's a surprisingly common bug in Java. Okay, both of those are old-timey bugs. Let's talk about something a little bit newer. A lot of people are using the Apache Foundation projects to do large-scale Java cloud stuff. Mm -hmm. a, lot of those pro a lot of those projects say that they're secure and have heinous problems or have not really been reviewed. Okay, so I have found a bunch of bugs um, over the past few years in Apache Foundation projects. I have reported some of them. Um, uh, I should I have reported all of them. I should say <clears throat> I've tried to report all of them. Uh, is, is probably more accurate. Not all of them were accepted, uh, but uh, a lot of them a lot of them have been fixed. Um, but the uh, people assume that those projects are bug free, and sometimes they are just terrible security nightmares. Uh, so one example is one example is Zookeeper. Uh, a lot of people use uh, Apache Zookeeper uh, for cluster management um, and uh, kind of like load balancing, kind of Etsy D type stuff. Okay. Um, but the it is a security nightmare. There are three different settings uh, in their ACL system. One allows universal read write, and the other two are labeled unsafe in all caps. So, uh, that, I mean, that's, that, right. that's skimming the surface, that's skimming mm -hmm. the surface of what's wrong with zookeeper, but what commonly happens when people install zookeeper or several other of the Apache, um, uh, uh, foundation projects, including Kafka, what commonly happens is that those installers would automatically turn on JMX and by default, JMX does not require a password. JMX is the Java manageability extension. And it is one of the many ports that Java will open up that will just run code from the network. A lot of cloud things will install Zookeeper. Zookeeper automatically turns on JMX. JMX by default has no password. They All they did was install Zookeeper. Uh, now there's a port listening on their instance that I can connect to and execute whatever code I want with no password. Nice. Just that simple. There's a, a lot of other similar problems uh, with Java, including the Java debugging uh, port. If anyone ever uses Eclipse to remotely uh, debug to an instance in production, they will enable the Eclipse debugger. That is another Java port uh, or the Java Java wire debug protocol. Uh, and that is another type of Java port that will just listen with no password and run whatever code you send it. And there's that's not even all. There's also RMI servers, uh, which you commonly see with like uh, JBoss, like app, app Java application servers commonly uh, fire up a whole bunch of RMI um, uh, listeners, and sometimes you can just connect to those and run whatever code you want. There's also log file injection that can lead to remote code execution uh, in Java. There's all kinds of stuff. Like other than log4j, there's other ways of doing it uh, that are 
uh, commonly supported in um, in Java beans and uh, bean servers. Um, and uh, you know, there's also the the deserialization bugs, uh, which are re- were really common in Java, and there was a whole generation of those. And uh, uh, I, like, but I, without even getting into the deserialization bugs, which you know uh, can get a little bit tricky. Some of them still work, um, but the, uh, uh, those are ones that like rely on side effects of constructors of things. So it's like you might not even necessarily get direct code execution, but you can still there are still like gadgets that you can get like uh, functional gadgets that you can get from the constructors of certain classes or beans that you can find on targets sometimes uh but they they did do a round of work to remove most of the really dangerous stuff from constructors of things over the past few years in java um so that got a little bit harder but it's there's still stuff you can do um if you can just trigger a constructor but a lot of the common problems i'm seeing are literally just the default installer for a package that everybody uses turns on a listening port that runs code directly from the network with no password. And if that sounds like a stupid bug, it should. I think that the bugs are actually getting stupider as time goes on. Mm. And I think that that is probably going to continue because the name of the game is going to be dealing dealing with an increasing number of bugs in the source code that is being written um for the you know the economic reasons i was discussing earlier um and that's just going to be the way things go and 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 to get back to like you know what i was talking about in the beginning like hackers on tv are smart but hackers in real life don't have to be smart like you just have to be you just have to find some mistake by a lazy developer Pretty much, yeah. and and the thing is, is all the well, not, they're not even lazy developers. No. Just they're, they're I'm sure they're they they mean well, but they just don't yeah. know any better. Yeah, you know? yeah. And the, and the thing is, is they all make the same mistakes. So once you see the mistake once, it's really fast to look for it again because our our brains, the one thing they're really good at is pattern matching. So I have all these patterns for all these different programming languages for all these bugs I've seen in my head. So when I, you know, when I look at something, uh, I just look for any of the bugs I've seen before. And as, as uh, you do this over the years, you have more and more and more and more and more of those in your head. I mean, the other easy one, the obvious one, this is not just a Java bug, but this is every single programming language. If you want to find SQL injection, what you're looking for is string concatenation going into a SQL query. Because if they're using parameterized queries to build their SQL queries, there can be no SQL injection but that also means that there probably will be no string concatenation at all. Um, and so if you're just, if you go into it thinking, I'm looking for string concatenation going into a SQL query in whatever language you're in, that helps you find SQL injection really, really fast. And in some languages, like, and there are, there are circumstances where you can do string concatenation to like on the template itself to build up the parameterized template dynamically. If you, if you're doing something really complicated with like clauses, but you should never be just concatenating values into a query, right? So it's like, there is, there's a like one edge case where if the guy really looks like he knows what he's doing, I'll like string concatenation, whatever dynamic query, but there's probably a better way you could have done that dude. Like, honestly, anyway, so the, I've done it. There's a thing in Radnet that does it. So I'm waiting. I've, I'm just judging myself harshly right now, but the, um, uh, in, in Ruby, if you're looking for SQL injection, Everything in Ruby that goes to the database for the most part goes through active record. And you can actually, you can actually build a one line grep thing that will flag any SQL injection that happens inside any active record call as a potential SQL injection. Basically, if you see any like the hash sign between the, the curly braces following any of the active record uh, calls, like select update all that. I built out this whole thing as a one-line regex grep thing. And then I could run that over any Ruby code and it would literally would have some false positives, but it would spit out every single instance of string concatenation that happened inside an active record expression. Well, anytime they included a variable, basically, and it would be like, this is what you need to look at, right? And I would just, I would run that. It would take two seconds and then I would look through uh, everything it spit out. And I'd be like, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. And then I would just go straight to how do I, how do I hit that SQL request with a web request? Right. So you go backwards to like, how do I send this from the web? And then how do I, you know, work out exactly what to put in the injection string? So it does what I want. 
right? Yeah. And then um, it's nothing magical. Like it, what makes it magic is once you kind of get into it, it doesn't even take that long. I was, I, the first year I was doing this, I, I was starting to do, I was starting to chain smaller bugs together. And that's the real magic, right? Like once you start finding piles and piles and piles of bugs, they're not all critical bugs. Like if you find a, a bug that just like runs your code, you know, you send it code, it runs the code. That's great, but you're done, right? You found one bug um, and you win, okay? Well, then you got to, you got to go back and find a different bug and like pretend you didn't find that bug or whatever, but you're going to find a bunch of bugs that just give you some weird capability, but not full code execution or not full root. Right. But they'll yeah. give you some little advantage here and there. And you get, if you get a big pile of those together, you, you make a chain, you know, where you, you, you have to go through a multiple steps, but at the end of it, you win. Right. And what I've noticed since I've been hacking into things since the, 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 you know, uh, uh, early to mid nineties, what I've noticed is that in the beginning, there were less steps to winning. And as, as time passes, uh, there are more steps to winning sometimes with the log for J thing that is like one step and you win. And that is what makes it absolutely terrible. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, that is, that is an embarrassment for entire species. That, 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 that. <laughs> Uh, and but I'm afraid it's 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 probably just going to get worse from here, right? There's no like if you look at you know Microsoft went several years without having any serious bugs, right? They were taking security really really seriously for a while after like the Slammer thing was really embarrassing and all those worms, and then they were like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna treat software testing as a discipline. We're gonna take security really seriously, um, and then they actually had a pretty good reputation there for a while, right? Yeah. And uh, that in the last year. Two or two years, I think they've basically totally blown that. You know, there have been so many tremendous Windows bugs that were just dumb oversights that they we found out were open for for years and years that people could have been exploiting this whole time, um, and they were just dumb things like you know they left a copy of the registry hive that any user could access. That is a free privilege escalation for every user to system, you know, and. That's that was open for two years, and it was a it was a regression. It was a bug they had fixed um, that then they broke, uh, and no one noticed for two years. Like they broke it in some like rev of like Windows eight or something, and then no one noticed for Windows ten or Windows eleven. This is what happened. So what happened is that in about 2015, 2016, they decided they were going to do away with software testing as a discipline, and they were going to rely on telemetry. Uh, uh, that they gathered from their users, like they were going to live stream telemetry from the people using all their products over the internet. They were going to gather that in a big bucket, apply machine learning to it. And somehow that was going to be better than actually testing software. Right. But I don't think that that works very well for security bugs. Like that'll find crashes in user interfaces, Mm -hmm. you know, that'll find, I mean, I don't even, maybe that'll find performance issues, but honestly, that's really just going to find errors and crashes in your UI. That's that, that, you know, the telemetry based, uh, testing is not going to find security problems. Right. So, uh, you know, and they, they also had a a internal discipline of doing internal pen tests and all that too. And I'm not really sure what happened there, but clearly some stuff has been slipping over the past couple of years because, you know, they've had like remote exploits in, you know, pre-authentication exploits in all of their flagship stuff stuff that hasn't had bugs in like a decade, you know, and, and not just that, like one thing after another, you know, and, um, I think there's blood in the water, you know, for windows is like, like a ton, there's blood in the water for Java. And these are still things that are just deployed everywhere. There isn't, there isn't really a more secure, like you can, you know, there isn't an easy fix, right? There's like software systems written in Java. There's going to be Java running, uh, big chunks of the internet for decades, mm-hmm. you know, you know, that just practically speaking, you know, they're not, they're not going to rewrite this stuff. Like for example, big chunks of eBay are in Java, mm-hmm. right? How, how long is eBay going to exist as a thing? I don't know. Decades? Really? I don't know. I don't know. Probably. But the whole, it, the, as long as eBay exists, they're probably not going to rewrite it into anything that's not Java. It would be an enormous amount. Uh, yeah. So, the, uh, and the same deal with Windows, right? You've got some corporate network. You got thirty thousand machines. They're running Windows. You've got a giant IT staff. They all know Windows. Like, on what timeline are you switching everything to Linux? 
Yeah, it, it's not really feasible. No, it's just yeah. forget about it. Well, so there's there's these huge forces of inertia that prevent mm -hmm. systemic change systemic change from happening. There's a huge resistance to systemic systemic change that would make some of these classes of vulnerabilities go away, or make them harder to introduce. Right. So there's a, a, a ton of resistance to change. And in that environment, there is an ever-growing demand for uh, labor. And that ever-growing demand is willing to accept uh, an ever-reducing uh, starting skill level for the people they hire. And uh, uh, they're trying to uh, automate as much oversight as they can because there are some companies that literally just cannot hire security engineers because there is no, there is no training program for it, really. Like people have been trying to come up with training programs for it, but it's really hard. I've been uh, with some of these workshops I've been doing, you know, um, uh, I've been, I've been thinking about this myself a little bit. I've been trying to train some hackers a little bit, you know, you have to get them to hack something. Yep. And is the first time somebody hacks something, they realize that wasn't hard. They realize everything I saw on TV has been a lie. Every smart hacker character that showed up and like did something in, in 10 seconds or whatever. That's like not, that's not at all how this goes, you know? But like, if you're willing to sit and stare at something for a week or two, you know, you can break it, yep. whatever it is, whatever it is, you can break it in probably in less than two weeks. Most likely, like I said, you know, uh, you, your whole career doing this, you run into one or two things, maybe if you're lucky that are really, really hard, that really, really made you work for it. I've run into more, I have run into like maybe half a dozen things like where the, the team was really, really tight and I really had to work um, and like chain together a whole bunch of things and like had to do some crazy stuff like out of the box in order to win. But like the vast majority of it is just, I mean, and, and the odds are that's fun for me. But your actual value as a professional hacker, as a security consultant, your actual value to your customers is that you are a yardstick, okay? You are a hacker of a known quantity. You're going to work for a fixed period of time to try and hack into their thing. And they will learn from that whether or not their thing can survive that long against a hacker of that skill level mm -hmm. using a certain amount of resources, right? That is the actual measurement they're getting from you. Okay. So if I have to do something crazy that I'm the only one in the world who possibly could have done. Yeah. Right. Although it's fun for me, it's educational for them. It's not actually that useful for them anyway. It's just like, those are the moments I live for when I had to like invented a completely new thing. Right. Or if I had to like break crypto to win, you know, if they, if they make me do something really, really hard to win, like, I respect that project. I will usually be very nice to them in the write-up. I'll be like, I did something completely unreasonable to win here. And uh, like this team should not be like, you shouldn't hold it against the team. You know, like I had to do something wild, but the vast majority of the time you just roll in and you're like making a list of all the problems you've seen before as quickly as you can, you know? Yeah. And as soon as that list get, gets a couple things on it, you can start finding bugs in stuff real easy. It is, they are not rare. They are not hard to find. Um, and there's, I mean, it feels like you look at the, 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 the Tavis Ormandies of the world. You're like, ah, oh, you know, there's these really good people that are finding these crazy bugs and publishing all the time. But like, uh, Tavis didn't find the lug for JPEG. Like some, some dude playing Minecraft find it, found that to cheat at Minecraft. Uh, right. Yeah. Like. That's what the world is now. Like people trying to cheat at a children's game. Mm -hmm. Found like, major found, uh, security found a, found a way to take over a nuclear plant because there are nuclear plants that do run Java. Just saying. And everything, and I'm just like everything that runs Java runs Log4Jet for the most part. I mean, except for like two projects that use that other logging library, which now I'm sure everyone is like, I'm going to switch to something else because it turns out log for, yeah, it turns out log for J was just a complete goat rodeo, you know? Yeah. And every, everyone has been using it for 20 years at least. And no one looked at it twice. No one thought, Hey, 
should we look inside that repo and see if it's a total goat rodeo? And this, this brings me to the, the current reason that all security work is futile. Mm-hmm. Uh, dependency management is impossible. You cannot possibly read all of the source code that all of your repos are relying on. And if you don't update those libraries, you're going to get hacked. But if you do update those libraries, you're going to get hacked like SolarWinds style. If you don't update, you're going to get hacked like Log4j. And if you do update, you're going to get hacked uh, SolarWinds. There's no way you can automatically detect it happening in either case. And uh, there's there's no way you can feasibly hire enough people to do the amount of work you would have to do to to handle it manually. So every single like company and person out there just needs to accept uh, an almost uh, impossible amount of supply chain risk. Mm-hmm. Totally. And just li- just live with it. You know, yeah. it's like along with the possibility of horrible disease or dying in traffic or you know with like with you whatever else that can go wrong in life. It's just. You know, death and taxes and uh, dependency management. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, yeah, that that's a really hard thing, dependency management. Because, like you're saying, you as a developer, you don't want to like go over everything and write uh, security hardenings and mitigations for all the dependencies. Those are it's not even it's not it's not even that you don't want to. You cannot. It's too much. There, yeah. there are there are. Th- at a at a company with one security engineer, there will be thousands of dependencies. Easily, you know. At a company with you know, at Microsoft, I, I don't know. They have a very large number of security engineers, but they have a much larger number of dependencies across all of the projects in that company because it's insanely large, right? Like it's. I think that the problem of dependency management grows at a at a rate which is much, it's, it's, it, it's, it grows at a much higher rate than you can hire your way out of. Um, and I think that that is, um, that is one of the ways that thinking about like computational complexity is kind of informed how I think about business. I'm not really a business person. Mm-hmm. So I tend to think about business in terms of computer science. Um, so my whole understanding of the economics of the security industry is kind of based on uh, b- big O notation. Right mm-hmm. from computer science, where where it's used to describe the uh, the efficiency of an algorithm. The the points I'm making are are somewhat supported by data, but uh, you know it. Yeah, I think actually we're running out of time right now. But is there anything you would like to say or touch more upon? Um, yeah, well, um, so I've been I've been I've been talking at a pretty good clip. Uh, I'm wondering if you uh, what's your interest in Golang malware? Like what uh, what got you into this subject? What do you think? What, what do you think your what do you think your listeners are interested in? I think there, I I know there's a lot of uh, Golang developers out there, a lot of infosec people that use Golang uh, because it's kind of the the new kid on the block, so to say, and. Uh, I'm personally really interested in what I've been playing around with is the AV detection. Uh, so there I get a lot of nice tools that I'm going to shake up because that's often a, a very hard thing to do because like with backdoor factory, you know, like uh, packers and like ways to obfuscate the uh, um, payloads, it's, it's getting harder and harder. So it's a, uh, you always got to keep staying up to date there. And uh, like you said, the backdoor factory was awesome, but then it, it got out of date. But hopefully, it's it's being reborn. Well, uh, yeah. So the, uh, in in our rewrite, we wrote it to use BetterCap instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually really it's really pretty simple. The rewrite uh, once we had that library where we could um, uh, parse, edit, and then regenerate uh, binaries. Uh, basically, all we did is we took BetterCap, which is a rewrite of BetterCap, and Go. Uh, BetterCap supports uh, uh, not just um, ARP spoofing, uh, but also DNS poisoning, also DHCP v6 uh, man in the middling. Oh, nice. um, yeah. And and if anybody ever adds more capabilities to BetterCap, we'll just get that for free. But BetterCap also supports uh, JavaScript based uh, scripting language uh, they call uh, Caplet Script. Uh-huh. And they had one. They had a Caplet Script already called Download Autopone that um, that would intercept the download. 
when you were already man in the middle and it would replace it entirely with a malicious binary. Okay. So all we did is we started with download autopone and we just um, hacked it a little bit. Instead of uh, uh, pulling a file off the file system and swapping it in, we just had it call out to our library. We took the file they were trying to download, passed it out to our library, injected the, the shell code we wanted to inject, and then passed that on to the user, right? Nice. So uh, all we had to do was write a little bit of better cap script, and that created the glue to this library we wrote to, uh, to, to edit binaries, and then we were done. That was, that was back to our factory rewritten, you know? But it's also, it's like, it's all totally modular. Like the, we're using better cap to handle all of the man in the middle stuff so that you can actually twiddle between, you can change what man in the middle thing you want to do, you know, DNS or ARP, whatever, you know, you can also, uh, if any, you know, if anyone adds a, 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 a new method to better cap for like a new protocol, like you'll, we'll just automatically get support for that without even having to revisit our code. How are you deploying better cap? Are you using it for pen testing? Well, uh, in the middle on the internal network or have you used it? Yeah, well, thing? So here's the thing, right? So I have done a lot of man in the middling, uh, professionally, you know, one of the things that I, uh, I actually use it for a lot is simply is uh, reverse engineering Android apps, but the, that's a kind of different style, right? So with the backdoor factory, I have two different scenarios that I wanted to use it for. One is the old scenario with the Wi-Fi pineapple. All right. So I actually did, like I said, because of the RatNet project, I learned how to cross compile Go to MIPS 32 uh, soft float. I had some Wi Fi pineapples. I actually wrote Wi Fi pineapple packages uh, to build better cap for the Wi Fi pineapple um, and also uh, the backdoor factory. You can build them as OpenWRT packages that will run on the Wi Fi pineapple. Um, those repos I actually added to the, uh, the, the Wi-Fi pineapple uh, module list, but uh, they're also in uh, in the Binject GitHub, I think. And uh, so that's one scenario. Of course, the problem you run into there is who is connecting to random Wi-Fi access points at this point and downloading anything unencrypted these days. Yeah. Um, not that many things. Turns out some embedded devices, hmm. uh, but not that many actual people, right? Because okay. most... Most, most laptops and phones are, 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 have been having this problem for a while. They are not connecting to anonymous Wi-Fi access points quite as easily as they used to. And a lot of browsers are forcing TLS for everything, right? So like, a, 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 TL, like TLS stripping kind of doesn't work as well as it used to, yada, yada, yada. What you, you, you can't just use a self-signed cert or something and just be like, look, there's going to be a pop-up, but maybe they'll just think it's Starbucks fault and click through it, right? Mm -hmm. So like you can, you can rely on people just clicking through TLS warnings, but the browsers have been making that harder and harder. You know, you've got to like fish around and find the, the smaller and smaller pieces of text, right? They're trying to discourage people from doing that. The other scenario, and this is the one that I actually wanted it for. Um, when I got into the data center uh, pen testing, I actually got into kind of like spoofing BGP. Uh, okay. Oh, look it up. So you can spoof some routing protocols yeah. and you can actually convince some machines that uh, your physical hardware is really the IP address of a different machine they were talking to, right? You can route their request for a certain IP address that is not yours and you do not control to your machine by spoofing oh. routing protocols in certain circumstances. There is a website called BGPmon which I would recommend that you check out. So BGP is a global protocol that um, anybody can screw up. Basically, if you're a peer on the internet, BGP is not signed. It's not like encrypted. Anybody, anybody can send a BGP message that'll get it's accepted. Broadway, broadcast gateway protocol. Oh, it's a freaking nightmare. So yeah. basically there are giant, there are countries that are man in the middling big chunks of each other's network every single day as an ongoing kind of cold cyber war. And, and since all BGP messages are published, you can yeah. literally watch, there are websites that show you animations of BGP hijacks happening all over the world in real time. And, and you can literally just watch like, like Korea and Japan hijack each other's IP space. And that actually does trigger a man in the middle 
like requests going to the, the and and every once in a while like some amazon ip gets hijacked some google ip gets hijacked like one of the main google dns things got hijacked uh once a few months ago like bgp is kind of a thing so i was getting into bgp and i was like hey let's spoof some bgp just inside the data center you know like yeah. we'll get we'll, we'll redirect some internal addresses uh you know to my machine yeah. and so they're all expecting to see a tls cert that's signed by the ca the internal ca so then I was like, this is one of these multi-step things, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's like, if I want them to connect to me and think that I'm, you know, the other end, I need a real server cert. So what, what do you do if you need a real server cert? Well, you just pop one of those instances. Maybe it's running a, a passwordless JMX and maybe you just log into that and pull a server cert off of that. And now, and then maybe you're good to go, you know, depending <laughs> on what they're doing, well, depending on, on what they're doing for internal PKI, you know, depending on if they have it like locked down to each machine, which is really hard to do effectively, mm -hmm. you know, and especially it's like, if we're, if I have a real cert and I can arbitrarily lie about IP addresses and stuff like, you know, um, so I was actually kind of looking at scenarios where, um, I was uh, 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 potentially looking at man of the milling things inside the data center. And there was actually a third scenario, which is a little bit evil. This one is like, some people have brought this up to me and, they, and they've been fairly uncomfortable with it. But mm -hmm. um, the, the other thing you could do is uh, I have a fork of Backdoor Factory, which has added this functionality, but I have not merged it into the, the public repo yet um, because this, is, this one's a little bit uncomfortable. Okay. Um, but you can buy an authentic code cert, for example, for like $300. Okay. And, uh, windows binaries, for example, if they're signed, uh, they're, they're, they are, they are, odds are signed with authentic code. Um, mm -hmm. and there are, there are some si signed package types that have known vulnerabilities where you can put code in there without having to resign anything. And if you kind of add those together, like you can, you can make a situation where say, I mean, say I popped the endpoint where it's, where it's entirely outside of the TLS tunnel entirely, right? Like, 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 like say I've popped a, 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 an, an instance that's behind your load balancer or whatever, that's actually where the files are. And I'm just like, let's just backdoor every file that anyone downloads from the server forever. Right. I could like kind of make my own little proxy, you know, when your web traffic's still unencrypted and I can inject uh, a shell code and everything that gets downloaded. And if I really, if you were authentic code signing it, I could just buy an authentic code cert and I could, I could put that in backdoor factory and I can have it re-sign everything after it injects the shell code. That's the, that's what the fork does that I, that I don't, that I haven't published yet. Cause it's a little bit like, it's kind of all fun and games until somebody, it, it's really, it was really, really trivial to make that modification to the backdoor factory that's in there. But, uh, I got a little bit wobbly about actually publishing it. Uh, I might, mm. I might put it out. I might put it out someday. A couple other people have, have implemented it also, uh, and they have their own versions and they also got where they also they just kind of hit a wall where they're like, Oh, we've, we've published a lot of sort of malware components over the years, but this is sort of crossing a line because what it, you know, what it runs into is like, what if someone in the government in Iran finds this repo, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's literally not good at all. It's kind of working against my own, uh, like it's fun for me to have it, but I don't, I don't necessarily want anyone else to have it. <laughs> there are people you know, build yeah, bad things. But it is, I, I think it is, I think it is important. You know, it's a, it is a way of proving zero trust, mm -hmm. right? Cause like, if you really set all your network up right and everything's really requiring crypto right and your PKI is right, none of this should work, you know, like, uh, uh, but it is, it is surprisingly tricky to not screw up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's a pretty good question. I, yeah, I do. I do like man in the middle things. Um, but, uh, any other, did you have any other, uh, uh specific, uh, areas of interest? No, I think we gone through. A lot of them. <laughs> well, I think, uh, I don't know how long your uh, podcast episodes usually go. On our, on our podcast, we usually go until everybody uh, starts to fall asleep. So okay. uh, some, of those, some of those episodes have pushed like three hours. Yeah, uh, we have, I have one that's like a bit over three hours. I think, I think this one's getting, <laughs> getting a bit long now, but I, th I think we covered a lot, a lot of good content. 
and yeah. uh, thank you so much for uh, for being on the podcast. Uh, how can our listeners stay up to date with uh, what you're doing? Yeah, well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, to to be on, and you know, I got to got to tell a lot of my stories. It was always a good time. Uh, so my name is my name is Ben. I'm the host of a a, a podcast myself uh, called uh, Hack the Planet. Um, we have about 20 episodes up. Uh, we have, uh, we, uh, we've had a, a slow year this year. Uh, uh, I got slowed down by, uh, preparing for DEF CON mainly. And then, uh, just, you know, uh, uh, the, this year had a lot of, uh, ups and downs. Um, we do have another episode hopefully coming out, uh, uh, very shortly. Um, and we have another one in the can past that. So we are, uh, starting to rev up again, uh, but you can find us, it's called hack the planet. Um, so, uh, uh it, it you can actually you know you can go alexa play hack the planet podcast and that that, that oh, actually works dope. uh that's yeah dope. but the uh uh we're also on like uh uh i think like spotify and uh apple music and uh the, all the things uh but we have a website which is symbolcrash.com uh s-y-m-b-o-l-c-r-a-s-h symbolcrash.com slash podcast um we also have some blog blog posts up there um, my GitHub repos are AWGH and, uh, Binject. Um, and, uh, we do have a, uh, a Twitter feed, uh, that I, I do not read, uh, and only post to via bot. I tend to avoid all social media if at all possible, um, which, but on Twitter, it's a uh, symbol crash one. Um, and we also have a YouTube channel. Uh, so all of our episodes, we also render over a video loop, uh, uh, for YouTube. If you don't feel like, uh, dealing with the antiquated, uh, uh, podcast technology, uh, youtube.com slash symbol crash also will, uh, will, will take you, um, to our episodes. Awesome. We'll have that linked in the, in the show notes. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome. All right, Ben, thank you so much. And I hope to see you on the future episode. Uh, thanks again. I'll, I'll see you later.